those of you who come to our church here regularly will know that we're going through a series on 1 Peter. We've been through chapter 1 and we've dealt with uh, a good chunk of chapter 2. Um, last time we were dealing with verse 11 and 12. I think the paragraph headings are in the wrong place. And really, uh, verse 11 and 12 is a kind of springboard, as we were saying last week, that builds on what Peter's already been saying. I'm not going to recap that. But it's a springboard into what Peter's going to say from verse 13. He's really fleshing out in the rest of the chapter and down into chapter 3 what he was saying in verses 11 and 12. Here are a group of Christian believers scattered over quite a wide area who, but what Peter's trying to do is to encourage them in the face of difficulties to realise who they are because of what God has done in their hearts and lives. And he says to them there in verse 9 that they're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who now belong to God. And he says to them then in verse 11 and 12, Dear friends, I urge you. That's the language of a man with a shepherd's heart, isn't it? I urge you. He's not trying to boss them around. He wants to urge them and inspire them and encourage them in love to live as aliens and strangers in this world. They've previously been aliens and strangers to God. But they've been called out of the world into God's kingdom and now they're friends with God, but aliens and strangers in the world that they live in. And Peter says to them, don't be surprised at the sufferings that you've endured. What I want you to do is to abstain from the desires you used to have and live such good lives in this present world that even those who slander you would be ashamed on the day that God visits us. So we were looking at that last week. The question, I suppose, that arises, and I've been thinking about this, why does Peter then begin to talk about governments? The question that arises, I suppose, particularly for a suffering people, is this one. If we're a chosen people, and if we now belong to God, and if God has called us out of the world into this new kingdom of God, why don't we just go and hide somewhere in a ghetto or an enclave somewhere and live in a new community and have nothing to do with this world at all. That would be great, wouldn't it? That would be great. This world is evil anyway and they're always giving us a hard time. So let's go and hide away somewhere and live in a ghetto and we'll be a new Christian community. It would be like heaven on earth. That would be a legitimate question given what Peter's been saying, wouldn't it? And in some ways we can understand that as a question. Let's just ignore the world altogether and what a temptation. Well, Peter begins to spell out in practice what he means. And when he says you're a holy nation, he doesn't mean that he wants them to set up a new country and escape from this world. He's going to speak here, first of all, about civil governments. He's going to speak about slaves, which has implications for us when we think about employment. He's going to bring it right home in chapter 3 to family life and uh, the home life. I want you to notice um, that the main theme as we go through these verses is really the idea of authority. 
And uh, just look at the, the very first word in verse 13 that Phil read to us is the word submit. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. And it continues even in verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands. The idea that's kind of underpinning these verses is the idea of authority. And I think Peter is seeing a great connection here. A true Christian. Someone who really understands the gospel and God's word. Will all, true Christianity will always help people to have a right attitude towards authority. Christians ought to be good citizens, good employees, good employers, good husbands, good wives, good parents. True Christianity should not make people rebellious, but it should help them to have a right and a healthy attitude towards authority. And that's where Peter's going to go, and it's where we're going to dwell maybe over the next two or three Sundays as we unpick chapter 2 and into chapter 3. I I must confess to feeling slightly inadequate because I'm well aware that this is a massive subject for all sorts of reasons but I'm excited to be addressing it. The great thing about going through the Bible in in this kind of way consecutively as we do is that we come to passages like this and we have to work out the implications and apply them to our own hearts, don't we? We're not just picking favourite passages but we have to work through some of these passages as well and think What does this mean for the way I live as a Christian person in this world? So I'm really excited to be doing this and I hope we can learn some very important lessons individually and corporate as a church. Why why is this important? I I want to say to you that this whole subject of authority is really important for two reasons. Well, for many reasons, but I want to highlight two only. Otherwise, we'll be here a long time. The first reason is that we live in a culture that is very significantly anti-authority. We live in a culture that is very significantly anti-authority. I don't think this is particularly a new thing, but it is a very pervading influence in our modern culture. Um, Philosophers will tell us that we live in a post-modern world, and one of the elements of that post-modern culture is a cynicism and a distrust of anyone who is in authority. Postmodern thinkers are always trying to bring people in authority down. To, they, they call it deconstructionism. We're going to kind of unpick them and show that they're only in it for themselves. They're not really in it to do you any good. You mustn't trust them. Leaders are always in it for themselves. They're trying to control you and you need to break free of that. That's the pervading influence in our culture cynicism and distrust of authority figures. Sometimes authority figures don't help with that when they behave in ways that don't engage with our trust. We've seen something of that on our political landscape recently, haven't we? But it is not a good attitude for us to be cynical and distrustful generally of those who are in authority. 
this is so entrenched in our culture that I think you'll look a bit weird if you talk about respecting people in authority. It's almost not cool to be respectful. It is very cool to challenge authority. You can buy t-shirts that say that. Challenge authority. That's the way to live. Don't believe everything that people say to you. Well, there's some truth in that, of course. But it's not cool to submit to authority. So this is an important subject for cultural reasons. The second thing that I want to say is that it is also, sadly, very significantly uh, an issue in churches too. And uh, so many Christians have no clue what this whole area of life is really about. I've never heard much teaching on the subject of authority, in my, even in my short life. I'm only 23, as you know. But even in my short life, I haven't heard many preachers who have dealt in a significant way with this subject. But I, what I can say is that in, in my short life, I've seen so many issues that have developed and grown and festered in churches that really come down to basic immaturity in this very issue of understanding authority. Sometimes I think that there are Christians who are stuck in the baby phase that we call as parents the terrible twos. You know, they've, they've never grown up. And their attitude is they either want their own way or no way. And the toys go out the pram. And often it comes down to not understanding basic human authority and submission issues. I don't really want to get started on this because we'll waste the whole time talking about uh, these issues. But I think if I could change one thing about uh, churches I've known, it would perhaps be in this area. Leaders who know how to lead without controlling people abusively and people who know how to follow rather than throw tantrums. What a different place our churches would be if we could get this issue right. This is very important culturally and it's very important spiritually. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, What I I want to do is maybe just say a few general words on the subject of authority first. And then I want to talk a little bit uh, by way of introduction to this passage about the difference between the church and the state. We're going to talk a little bit about that and that will lead us into thinking about what Peter says here. And we're going to look at some other passages as well and hopefully we'll close with a good understanding of what Peter's trying to help us to understand here. So first of all, a few general words on authority. Okay? I want to, I wish we had the slides here because it would really help to have these up on the screen, but there we go. I I want to say, first of all, that authority begins with Jesus. First of all, we need to start with him. In the Gospels, it says in Matthew that when Jesus taught the crowds, this is what it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority. And Matthew adds, as a little aside, and not as their teachers of the law taught. 
the teachers of the law would spend hours and hours debating and mulling and relying on other sources. Jesus comes and says, I say, he had authority and he taught as one who had authority. It wasn't just his teaching though, was it? Jesus had authority to forgive people's sins. That is serious authority, isn't it? In fact, on one occasion, there was a man brought to Jesus and because they couldn't get in the house, they lowered him down through the roof. Very famous story. And uh, Jesus hears the Pharisees muttering and he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And they know only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, which is harder, to forgive someone's sins or to heal them? And then Jesus, I'm sure with a twinkle of his eye, turns to the man and says, take up your bed and walk. He's showing by healing him that he has power. Anyone could say, I forgive your sins. But Jesus showed that he had authority to forgive sins by healing the man in a supernatural way. Jesus cast out evil spirits. Get out of him. He had authority even over demonic forces. He healed sicknesses. He raised the dead. He even told the weather off as he stands up in the back of the boat and tells the weather to be quiet. And it obeys him. This is a man with serious authority. At the end of the Gospels, one of the very last verses in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended to heaven to take his place on his rightful throne, said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. He rules over everything and he rules over everyone. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. There's an American writer called R.C. Sproul, who, or Sproul, I never, never know how you say his name, I always say R.C. Sproul. He wrote a book about the Lord Jesus, and he, and he makes a lovely, there's a lovely chapter in there about the ascension. And the way he contrasts Jesus as a despised teacher in Galilee with dusty feet, Ascending through the clouds, past Pontius Pilate, who was too cowardly to give Jesus justice, past the high priest, who wanted him dead, past Caesar, and right up into the very throne room of heaven. No wonder it says at the end of Luke that they went back to Jerusalem with great joy. We say parting is such sweet sorrow. When, the, when it dawned on them that their Saviour was the King and Lord, they went back to Jerusalem with a skip in their step. He's ascended. He's Lord and King. He is the one who has ultimate authority. One writer says, there is not one inch of creation, there is not one culture or subculture of people, there is not one lifestyle or orientation, there is not one religion or philosophical system that Jesus does not possess full authority over. He is a reigning King. 
What that means is that all other authority proceeds from his ultimate authority. Parents, kings, politicians, church leaders, counsellors, they all derive their authority from his ultimate authority. We'll come back to this in a moment as we think about earthly governments. But I want you to see that Jesus is the ultimate authority and all other authority derives from him. That's important. And that will help us to put authority in its rightful place, won't it? Because behind every authority, rightful legal authority, is the supreme authority of Jesus, the Lord God himself. One more, I think this is an amazing truth, I'm just going to say this in passing, it's not really our main theme, but I want you to notice this about Jesus too, that the Lord Jesus Christ models both sides of this authority question. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes my kids come, not, well, not my sons, my daughters, and they'll kind of put some really wacky clothes on and they'll come and model them. And uh, the idea, you know, is that we say, well, that looks nice. I, I want to say to you that Jesus models for us, he demonstrates for us what good, wholesome, strong and gracious authority looks like. And yet, amazingly, because he came into this world and submitted to his Father, he also shows us what respect for authority should look like as well. Isn't that incredible? That in the same Saviour, both sides of that authority question are modelled perfectly. He is the perfect leader and he is the perfect servant. What an amazing truth that is. So whether we are in authority or whether we're under authority, we can learn a great deal from the Lord Jesus because he models both sides of that equation. So that's just a little throwaway. You can have that. I want to say, uh, finally, and just some subheadings under this as well, that we have a big issue with authority as human beings, don't we? This is one of the big problems in our world. It's one of the reasons why we have problems in our churches. We have a big problem with authority. And I want to say three things about that. Fundamentally and very simply, it is because of sin, isn't it? The word submit is a dirty word, really. And it always has been. The whole story of the human race, actually, is one long, sad story of people who do not want to submit to authority. Try to throw it off and go their own way. And it goes right back to our first parents, right there in the Garden of Eden, who wanted to shake their fist at God and strike out independently on their own. This issue of submission and authority is a big issue for the whole human race and for every individual human being. I love that um, account, well that, that's not really quite the right phrase, but I, I think this is an instructive illustration. Do you remember when Pilate, I think it's in John's Gospel isn't he, 
And he brought Jesus out to the screaming crowd. And he said to them, here is your king. And they said, away with him. We will not have this man to rule over us. That is the cry of the human heart, you know. We will not have this man, or in fact any other man, reigning over us. I'm the boss, no one else. That is the essence of sin, isn't it? Pride. I think we believe, generally, that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want to do. Except that what we do then begins to enslave us so that we end up not being free at all. It's interesting that God made the created order at the beginning. God made us to be in a relationship with him and he said to Adam and Eve, rule over this creation. And as soon as they broke off with God, they couldn't rule creation. Creation began to dominate them. It doesn't work when we shake our fist at God. We think we kid ourselves that we're free, but what we do actually enslaves us and rules over us rather than the other way around. So this, this, we have a big issue with authority because of sin. I think we have a big issue with authority as well because biblically this is a heart issue. It is very easy to submit to authority externally while having a heart that is angry and rages against authority. You can comply and look like you're obeying but that isn't what the Bible aims at, is it? All of these things in the Bible are heart issues. And uh, you can force anyone to do things by force, but the Bible is concerned with our hearts. The Bible isn't seeking for us to comply with God's commands unwillingly, but to be born again and completely changed from the inside out so that we do what is right because we want to, because we love him and we trust in him and his strength and help. The submission to God that comes as a result of being born again will be the key that will help us in our relationships with other people too because they're heart issues too, aren't they? I was reading someone who blogged on the internet about this and they're not talking here about our relationship with God so much. It's a Christian article but talk about our relationships with one another and this is what the guy said in his blog. This isn't simply getting under authority on the outside We're talking here about an internal thing, an attitudinal reality. It is becoming comfortable with the principle of authority, even even if the person of authority isn't all we might wish them to be. And it is the role of the one in authority to unselfishly help those under authority learn to live at peace with it. Those who comply with authority without understanding the principles tend to become bitter and angry, even when they are coming under authority. And that anger is what makes it hard for everyone. This is a big issue for us because of sin and because it's a heart issue, not just an external issue. And thirdly, on a different tack, I I think this is a big issue. I don't want to dwell on this, but um, this is a big issue for many people because 
we've experienced authority being abused. And I don't want to gloss over that reality. This whole area of authority can be a massive problem for some people who have been subject to abusive authority. The authority of Jesus is perfect, but that is not always our experience of authority in this broken world, is it? And it's not our main subject today. Maybe I just want to say this in passing, that the answer to abusive authority is not to abandon authority structures altogether. I don't mean by that that a Christian should stay in a situation where authority is being abused. What I'm referring to is the temptation to believe that because my experience of authority has been bad, all authority is bad. Which is not the case. Because I've been treated unfairly, I'm never going to trust anyone again. This is hard for some people, isn't it? Maybe for some of you. The answer to abusive authority is not the absence of authority, but generally what we need to do is to appeal to a higher authority to put right what is wrong. And sometimes it isn't wrong to call the police <laughs> and to call to a higher authority. We're not called here to be doormats and to suffer under abuse. So I want to kind of just uh, touch on that as we pass through this subject. Let's uh, get on to our main subject then of civil government here. Last, <coughs> excuse me, last uh, Saturday some of us went over to Christchurch Forward um, to a brilliant event. Wayne Grudem, who was a theologian, American uh, guy, is doing a tour of the UK. Phil was saying to me he's coming to Ireland. Uh, so I, I wonder what I'll make of the Irish political situation when he does his sermon on politics and the gospel but he's very very helpful I know some of you were there but I, I thought it'd be good for us <coughs> having had time to reflect and digest some of the things that Wayne Greedham was saying I wanted to just maybe use some of those things to help us establish some principles here and again in the absence of start, uh, slides I'll try and make this as close as I can what, what Gruden was saying last week was that God, in his wisdom, has given two significant institutions uh, for the peace and welfare of people in this world. And they are different institutions and they are separate institutions, but they do overlap and they can inform one another. But it isn't helpful when one or the other tries to exert authority over the other because they have different functions, as we'll see. One of those institutions is the church that God has established in his world. And the other institution is what we might call the state or civil government that God has instituted in the world. I want to say to you that the church exists partly because it is only through the gospel that people's hearts can be changed. And Jesus rules over both these realms, church and state, but in the church he rules, in the power of the Holy Spirit and through the authority of the Bible, God's written word given to us. Jesus rules in the domain of the church through the Spirit and through his word. And we're part of that domain. And that is how people's hearts can be changed by the gospel. 
And they can be born again. They can be lifted from that miry pit, as we were saying, and their feet set on a rock. Great transformation through the gospel. But of course, these are matters of faith and not matters of compulsion. And not everyone in any country, not everyone believes the gospel and experiences this change of heart that is so precious to those who know it. So God has also ordained civil governments that can rule and exercise authority and maintain peace and justice and restrain evil. The church for the changing of people's hearts, the government and state for the restraining of evil and to promote peace and justice. I thought um, Wayne Grudem made some really helpful observations here. Think, keep that in mind, church and state, different institutions. Both come under the Lordship of Christ, but they have different functions. Grudem made these observations, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, a little after reflecting on what he said. He said two things about the state, first of all. So this is good from a government point of view. He said these two things. First of all, the state ought never to fall into the trap of making religion compulsory. You cannot force people to believe anything really. This is a matter of faith and conscience. Sometimes our Muslim neighbours have fallen into this very error, haven't they? The state tries to enforce religion. You can't do it. And and it will end in, in tears. But there is an opposite issue as well. The state, secondly, ought not to completely outlaw religion either. Maybe we've evidence of that through communism in the last century. Uh, Communism sought to achieve that, didn't it? We want to get rid of religion altogether and uh, with very painful results. The state should uphold freedom of religion for all people as long as that's within the bounds of decency and reasonable laws. The state shouldn't make it compulsory and neither should it uh, outlaw religion completely. The state should uphold religious freedom. That's very helpful, I think. But then Grudem touched on three attitudes of Christians then towards the state. And I'm sorry to smile here. And his first one was this. Many Christians have this attitude, and it's a dangerous one. And uh, if you want to hear Grudem on this, get the tape. The state, first of all, is not to be feared as the realm of demonic power. Some Christians have this attitude, I don't want anything to do with politics or this world because that is the realm of Satan and demonic power. Grudem Grudem gave a little history of where that idea has arisen and uh, we're not going to dwell on it. But suffice it to say that that makes involvement and engagement with political process virtually impossible if you believe that as a Christian. No government is spiritually pure but all governments are under the sovereign control of God ultimately and we must respect and honour those who rule even when we disagree with them even when they're doing crazy things we must respect the, the office and, and those who rule so maybe you can talk to me afterwards about that last two points for Christians this is 
attitude towards the state. Secondly, we mustn't rate the state too highly. That is to say, we mustn't rely on the state to do the church's work. We mustn't rely on, the st- on good politics to change people's hearts. Because it will never happen. Politics is necessary, but we mustn't think that it can do what it can't do. Only the gospel can change people's hearts. So we mustn't rate the state too highly, but neither must we rate the state too lowly. We mustn't think that if only we could just ignore politics altogether and see the gospel bearing fruit, that would be enough. Well, it's a nice ideal, but not everyone believes the gospel. (laughs) And we need to engage, don't we? And influence policymakers and, and be involved in political process where we can as Christian people. Grudem used the excellent example of the Christian Institute in this past year. Uh, there's been a bill that's been going through Parliament about religious freedom. And the Christian Institute has mobilised many pastors and ministers and church members to visit their MPs. And there are many stories of MPs who said to them, we did not know what was at stake here. And for the first time in my political career, I'm going to vote against my party because this is too important. Thank you for coming to see me. That vote was defeated in the House of Commons by one vote. And part of that was the engagement of Christian people with that political process for good. So it's not good to rate the state too highly, but it's also not good for Christians to rate the state as an irrelevance. So, hopefully that's helpful. The church, the state, these are important issues and I know there's a lot in that. Let's um, come back then to the Bible and to this subject from a biblical point of view. I want to talk about four things before we close. Uh, First of all, and this is an obvious point, the basis for government is the sovereign rule of our Lord God in other words what I mean by that is that governments exist by God's decree and command even bad ones and good ones God is the sovereign king over his world it's interesting that Daniel in the Old Testament you know Daniel don't you he lived most of his life as an exile in a foreign land under a pagan he actually worked in a pagan government and this is what he says in Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 if you're taking notes I can read it to you you don't need to turn to it this is what he said he's praising God praise be to the name of God forever and ever wisdom and power are his he changes times and seasons he sets up kings and deposes them he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He's in a foreign country, working in a pagan government, and he lifts up his voice and says, it is the Lord God who sets up kings and deposes them. God is in charge, ultimately. Again, God's speaking in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth 
and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them. And they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Do you know, this is an encouragement to people who are suffering injustice, is it not? Some people, when they face injustice, say, how can there be a God? You don't want to say that when you're facing injustice. You don't want to say that. How does that help you? There's no answer to injustice if there is no God. When you're facing injustice as these Christian believers were, as Daniel to a degree was, and the prophet Isaiah writes at a time when the people were about to be taken into exile, we need to know, don't we, that human governments are not ultimately in charge. They don't last forever. God is the sovereign Lord. Just uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Keep your finger in 1 Peter. And we'll go to Romans 13. And um, Romans chapter 13, it's on page 1140 in the Church Bibles. 1140. Romans chapter 13. We've seen something of what Peter said. And these are. This is an amazing letter written to the church in Rome. The biggest world superpower of this very time. And Paul here writing to Christian believers says in chapter 13 Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I want to just stop there for a minute. I want you to understand that Paul is writing here in a brutal culture it is possible at this moment and when Peter's writing that the Emperor Nero is the Emperor. It's possible. He was persecuting Christians, using them as candles in his garden, tying them to chariot wheels and driving them through the city until they were dead. And Paul and Peter ride into that culture to Christian people and they don't say, go and hide in the hills. What they say is, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities I think the implication is that must include authorities that are not particularly good that we might not necessarily agree with that's a very challenging word that isn't it when we realise who this is written to Christians often were persecuted by their own people group when a Jew became a Christian be persecuted by his Jewish friends when a Greek became a Christian, he'd be persecuted by his Greek friends. When a Roman citizen becomes a Christian, the flack will come from his Roman friends and neighbours. Peter is saying here, you were once strangers to God, but now you've been called out of this world 
and you are the friends of God, that means that you are no strangers in this world. So don't be surprised when trouble and opposition and difficulty comes. But be very careful that you don't rebel either. Go back into that broken, hard world and show people that your faith in God makes you a better citizen, a better employee, a better parent, a better person. That's exactly what Peter says. We'll come to it in a moment. So the basis of government, I want to say, is not democratic process, although that is important. Ultimately, it is in the hands of the Lord God. Secondly, we've touched on it already. What is the po- that's the basis of government. What is the point of government? Both Paul and Peter say the same thing. The point of government, according to the Bible, is to restrain evil and to promote justice and peace in this fallen world. In Romans chapter 13 and verse uh, 4, Paul says that the state really, the authorities are God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. The state is there to promote justice, to commend those who do good, and to, and to enforce justice for those who don't do good. And it's necessary then to submit to those authorities because they're there for the peace of all, ideally. The same idea is there in 1 Peter, as we've seen. Um, Peter says in verse 14 of the passage we read, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority um, or, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy, his young protege, first letter he wrote to Timothy, chapter 2. He commands uh, Christians to pray for those in authority. And the reason that he gives for that is so that we might live in peace. The state is there to maintain justice and peace for all. And that is a good thing. When that happens, the gospel can flourish. So we should pray for those in authority that they'll rule wisely and righteously and that we would know order and peace and justice and not anarchy and chaos and injustice. It is good for governments to make good laws, to enforce justice, to protect their citizens by having good defence strategies. These are important issues of state. And never let it be said on the basis of these passages that Christianity is somehow anti-authority or anti-politics because it isn't civil governments are not perfect but they are ordained by God to restrain evil and promote justice and so we should obey them and submit to them well that leads us on to a third point then what should our right attitude be to government then and uh, I want to just break up this uh, phrase that Peter uses here uh, for, for most of the rest of the time. He, Peter says here in verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. 
So there's two things there. He tells us what to do and he tells us why we do it, doesn't he? Submit for the Lord's sake. Can I take the liberty of taking the second one first? For the Lord's sake. And then we'll look at what it means to submit. Why does he say for the Lord's sake? Well, I think for two reasons. And it follows from what we've been saying all along. That we should obey civil authority. Not because we're forced to. Not because we're just mild-mannered people who don't like to rock the boat. But we should obey civil authorities. Because in doing so, we're obeying God. For the Lord's sake. That is the motive for a Christian. That is the motive. The inward heart motive. It is not because I have to or because I feel like it's natural. We obey because we're obeying God. For the Lord's sake. We obey these authorities because in doing that we're expressing our obedience to the Lord God himself. But there's a second facet here I think. When Peter says for the Lord's sake I think he's alluding to the fact that this is part of our witness in the world as well. We do it for his sake because we want to show who we really are and what God has done in our lives. And it is for the Lord's sake in that sense. This is, um, I think, true because the whole context contains this. He say, Peter says this in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He says in verse 15, It's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. The fact is that Christian people are on show. We do live in this world. And we obey civil authorities for the Lord's sake. It is not good for a Christian to be a poor citizen. That is a poor reflection on the faith that we profess. John MacArthur, who's an American uh, writer and preacher, tells the following story. I think this is deeply challenging. I'm just going to read this to you. This is John MacArthur, what he says. Uh, I remember when... um, a guy called Sam Erickson was in our church and one day Sam he was working for a law firm in Los Angeles and he was having lunch with a group of attorneys in the city and he was a very active Christian and he used to invite people to come to church to hear God's word and he said to one attorney I'd love you to come to my church with me would you come and be my guest at my church And the man said, what church do you go to? So he told him, I go to Grace Community Church. And the man hesitated for a moment and shuffled in his seat, looked a bit shocked and he said, I would never go to that church. And Sam said to him, what makes you say that? Have you been there? Have you had some kind of bad experience? He said, I've never been there and I never will. And and Sam's by this time getting a bit distressed. Why? What on earth is wrong? How can you make that kind of a judgment when you've never even been to the church? It's very simple, he said. The most crooked attorney I know in this city goes to that church. Well, Sam must have been crestfallen, must he? He went back and he told John MacArthur. John MacArthur says this, the following Sunday I got into the pulpit and told that very story and I said... And you can imagine looking out. This is a big church, by the way. He said, I don't know which one of you is that attorney. 
But either get your act together or quit telling people that you belong to this church because your character is making our evangelism impossible. What a thing for a pastor to have to say. Either sort your life out or leave because your character is putting people off our church and making evangelism impossible. It's poor that, isn't it? What a challenge. What a challenge for us as Christian people. For the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, submit. What about this word submit then? I want to say um, just a couple of things very quickly before we close. This word submit obviously, first of all, means compliance with the laws of the land. I think that's fairly obvious. For a Christian person, this will mean paying taxes on time and accurately. I came across one funny story. One minister, he was very busy, pressed for time, went into town, couldn't find a parking space. So he parked in a no parking zone and put a note on his windscreen. I have circled this block ten times. I have an appointment to keep. Forgive us our trespasses. When he came back to his car, he found a ticket on the windscreen that said, I've circled this block for ten years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'll lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was very good. Clever traffic warden. Submission means obeying the law, doesn't it? It means complying with the laws of the land. It's not our place to be rebels. Secondly, I would say to you that submit also has within it something of the idea of respect. Sometimes it's very hard for us to respect leaders who are governing unwisely, but we must respect the office even if we can't respect the person. And I think I want to say this as well about our culture. One of the things that's common in our culture is disrespect. You know, there are endless programs on TV that derive their popularity from slating anyone and everyone who's a public figure, lampooning them. There are comedians who've made careers out of building people up and then dragging them down. And I'm sure there's a place for satire and um, exposing foolish behaviour with humour. But we have to be very careful as Christian people, I think, that we don't cross the line into cynical, disrespectful speech about our civic authorities and civic leaders. That, That isn't really what it means to submit, is it? when we're being unkind and disrespectful. And I think, uh, lastly, this includes being a positive influence. Peter says very intriguingly here that it is by doing good that you will silence the talk, the ignorant talk of foolish men. I think sometimes the attitude of Christians is to be against things. We take a stand against this, we take a stand against that, we're against things, and there's a place for that. That isn't what Peter says here though. He's not talking about taking a stand against things. He is talking about being a positive influence and standing for things, isn't he? By doing good, silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Don't just focus on not being a bad influence. Make sure as a Christian citizen you are working to be a good influence. 
And again, this is written into a bad culture. And Peter urges them to courageous, positive influence that will not settle for hiding away. Well, we're almost done. Before we finish, I want to just highlight here verse 16 and just make one comment about freedom. I think one of the temptations for these Christians, and sometimes maybe for us, is to say something like this. Well, we're Christians now, we're free. We don't really need to uh, take too much notice of the world and its ways. Peter says here, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. I think this verse teaches us that we must never forget that we are free as Christian people but we should always use our freedom to do what is right and not let it be an excuse for doing what is wrong. Actually Peter implies here that freedom, true freedom actually comes from submitting to God as his servants which is very counterintuitive, isn't it? The world thinks freedom is throwing off restraint. The Bible teaches that true freedom is found in submitting to and following Christ. Martin Luther said, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. The key to that paradox is God. Freed by God from slavery to all human institutions and sent by God freely and submissively into those institutions. Why? For his sake. We've touched on the fact that this is an issue of attitude. And I want to say now as we close the challenge that this issue of authority and submission is not really about you it's not really about your boss or the government or a teacher or a parent. It's not about anyone in authority over you. This issue really is about God, isn't it? Submission is all about God. Until we grasp that, we're going to really struggle with the idea of authority. We've already pointed it out, I think. We were saying on Wednesday as we were taking communion and looking at the end of this chapter, that one significant flaw in human nature is the idea that we'll keep our side of the bargain when everyone else keeps theirs. <laughs> I'll be a good husband when my wife is a good wife. I'll be a good church member when my pastor gets his act together. I'll be a good citizen when we have a better government. That's human nature. That's the way the world thinks. Peter here, in every one of these examples, is talking about authority that isn't perfect. And yet he says, submit. Peter isn't saying, wait till everything changes and do it then, but do it now. And I think this comes down to faith. One writer asked these questions, do I really believe that God is in control of my life, even down to the tiniest details? Do I believe that God has me where he wants me to be right now? If you can answer yes to those questions, you can learn to submit to authority for the Lord's sake but until you can answer yes you'll struggle with the idea of authority and always be craving something new 
and fail to trust God now. Phil and Anne will remember a dear old lady who was a very good friend of mine called Mrs Shaw. She lived on Park Road in Wath and I lived on Park Road in Wath at one time when I was working at the pit. I was only 18. I used to love going to Mrs Shaw's house for a cup of tea and a piece of fruitcake. She used to give me fruitcake to take down the pit and the, the miners on the coalface used to love it. In her armchair in her back room next to a coal fire she had a little book by Oswald Chambers called My Utmost for His Highest. She used to love to read that book. And I'm told that Oswald Chambers, when he wrote letters, he used to make a little three-word phrase near the end of every letter he wrote. And it said this. At the end of his letter, he would put, Be absolutely his. And that's really what Peter's saying here. Christian friend, dear believer, be absolutely his his at home church your job your classroom in every relationship be absolutely his not yours but his in the end submission isn't about giving in to someone else or following a set of rules submission is a spiritual issue between you and God himself because behind every human authority however imperfect stands the Lord himself we might well ask is there anyone who can live like this it's not me for sure brings us back to Jesus doesn't it and his cross the supreme authority the ultimate king king of kings and lord of lords who submitted so graciously even to evil men and he overcame evil with ultimate good Verse 25 describes these very people and it describes some of you here. For you were like sheep going astray but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well I trust that it will be so for you even today. Thank you. It's a big subject. Let's sing a closing song. Challenge and to inspire us as we go into a new week. O church, arise and put your armour on and we're going to stand to sing. Thank you, Joan.
makes the wounded whole. We will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ shall have the price for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his falls lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has risen. And as the soul is rolled away, and Christ emerges from the grave, his victory march continues till the day, and the eye and heart shall see. in every stride give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful as saints of old still line the way returning triumph where with Christ we'll stand in glory. Well, please do sit down. We're going to pray as we close. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the challenge and the practical nature of it. Lord, we pray that you would help us because of our faith in Jesus to be good citizens. Help us, Lord, to be understanding what it means to submit in these ways. Help us for your sake to be all that we can be in this world in which we live. We pray that others might see something of the goodness of the gospel as they see uh, the way that we choose to live in this world. May this, Lord, have gospel power in our church, in our town, in our area. We pray that Jesus would be magnified and glorified as we seek to live in this world for his sake. We pray, Lord, that you will help us as we go into a new week. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would help us and guide us, encourage us and inspire us to be the people that we ought to be. Lord, we pray for those who maybe do not yet know the Lord Jesus, have not yet submitted to him as their Lord and Saviour. Lord, perhaps even now, this very morning, there might be someone who turns to him in faith. Lord, we pray that our church would be growing 
as you call people out of this world into your kingdom. We pray that you would help us to be diligent as we live for you in this world. We ask all these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus, the ultimate authority. Amen.